Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Department of Interior, along with the National Endowment for the Humanities, are supporting digital documentation of stories and records connected to U.S. boarding schools. That's one of many initiatives taking place to digitize archives and make historical information accessible to researchers and families to learn from. We'll talk more about digital repatriation right after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. There's more public information about the truth of Indian boarding schools with newly published research. The path ahead for many Native communities includes more truth-telling and reconciliation. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene has more. Across the nation, including in dozens of South Dakota communities, Native American children were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in boarding schools as part of a larger effort to assimilate them into wider American culture, often with tragic outcomes. New research published by the Catholic Truth and Healing website now tallies 87 Catholic-led institutions nationwide, including nine in South Dakota. Maka Black Elk is executive director of Truth and Healing at the Red Cloud Indian School on the Pine Ridge Reservation, a former boarding school. He served as a consultant for that group. And the thing that people don't understand often about the Catholic Church is that it is not a single institution. It's not all located in one place like the federal government, right? And so this effort was really needed in order to uh, bring some clarity as to like where all those schools were, who ran them, where those records might be, and how tribes can access them. Black Elk says there are many pathways to healing these wounds. We have to do what we can to support people in their healing effort. And while that may not mean a day in court, for example, on this issue, it could mean other things, other ways of, of finding healing. Certainly all of our Catholic former boarding schools that exist in the state should all be engaged in this effort. But for real reconciliation to happen, Black Elk says the church itself must be present. Anything that the Catholic Church can do to assist in, in all of these efforts, it's is their responsibility to do so. And I say that, you know, as uh, a, a Catholic person myself. Both the Sioux Falls and Rapid City Diocese did not return requests for comment. I'm CJ Keene. Fans of the TV drama Alaska Daily will never know if Eileen Fitzgerald, a hotshot reporter, will fall in love with a bush pilot and put down roots in Alaska. ABC has canceled the series after only one season. Hillary Swank played Fitzgerald, who went to Alaska to redeem her reputation after she left a New York City newspaper in disgrace. A former editor recruited her to help investigate a series of cold cases involving missing and murdered indigenous women. Eileen was neither impressed with the Alaska Daily, nor the reporter she was paired up with, Roz Friendly, an Alaska native and one of the newspaper's rising stars, played by Grace Dove. Vera Starbard, an Alaska native and one of the writers for the series, says she had hoped to expand Roz's role to reveal more about her culture and family background. Literally millions of people who saw the show now have to know this is an issue, and many of them are a, a little bit more educated on 
exactly why that's an issue. Starbart says Roz and Eileen were pivotal characters who helped to raise awareness about the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Honestly, she's the reason I signed on to the show. Like, okay, here's a real Alaska Native character. This isn't some silent nobody who's going to get two lines, but who's really going to sort of fight for her own space and fight for her right to be there. Native writers worked to keep Alaska Daily from becoming too sensational. They also tried hard to make the show as authentically Alaskan as possible and get native languages incorporated into the script. Starbard says she's disappointed but not surprised ABC canceled the program. It was an expensive show to produce and did not draw the ratings the network had hoped for. She wrote the 11th and final episode, she says, leaving the show with a feeling that there's much more to share about the richness and beauty of Alaska's indigenous cultures. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition is getting close to sharing an online archive with the public. Researchers and archivists have been building the digital database from documents stored by various boarding school institutions. It's a lot of work and expense, but it's something tribes and families of past boarding school attendees requested as they seek answers about what went on in the schools. Better access could help uncover details about some relatives who got lost in the system. The National Endowment for the Humanities is working in collaboration with the Department of Interior on their own digital archive process. We'll talk about why this work is important and what it might contribute to the ongoing discussion and healing. Please join today's conversation. Do you think archival information will help you to better understand your family or tribal history? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Shelly Lowe. She's the chair of the U.S. National Endowment for the Humanities, and she's Danae. Shelly, finally, we got you on Native America Calling. Welcome. Well, hello, Sean. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you, and I just want to take a moment to thank you and your team at the National Endowment for the Humanities for being such gracious hosts when we were in D.C. earlier this year. Well, I have to take a moment to also congratulate you once again for being awarded a National Humanities Medal by President Biden. It was an honor to be able to be part of uh, the administration providing a medal to the first ever Native organization to receive one. So um, you guys are making history, and I'm just so excited that you were able to be honored and acknowledged in that way. 
Uh, well, we sure do appreciate it, all of us, very much. Thank you, Shelley. Also on our show today and speaking with us in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is Fallon Carey. She is the Digital Archives Assistant for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. She's from the Cherokee Nation. Fallon, welcome to the show as well. Hi, thank you so much. It's amazing to be here, and I'm very excited. You bet. We're super excited to have you on the show as well, Fallon. Also speaking with us uh, is Deidre Whiteman. She's in Vermilion, South Dakota, and she's the Director of Research and Education for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. She's Meskwaki, Dakota, Ojibwe, and Hadatsa. Deidre, thank you for joining us. Hello. Happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to all of you. Thank you for Happy having us. <laughs> Happy to have you on the show, Deidre. And joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, is Selena Ortega Chalero. She's the museum specialist for the Chickaloon Village Traditional Council. She's Tara Humara. Selena, welcome. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to having a great conversation this morning. Looking forward to having you contribute as well, Selena. Shelly, uh, please start us off today and explain how NEH's Digital Archive Project aligns with Department of Interior's Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. Thank you. That's a very important question, Sean. Um, you know, when the Department of the Interior and Secretary Deb Hallen um, announced that they were going to be doing the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative and talked about the goals of the project. I read through it and I, I told the staff here at the agency that this aligns with all of the work that we do here at the agency. Um, a big portion of our grant funding goes into preservation and access of cultural materials and that includes digital archiving and providing digital access to materials online. So when the report came out um, and it was clear that the Department of the Interior was going to be combing through the federal archives, but pulling materials out to be digitized, I said, this is something that we need to be supporting. Um, and thankfully, as a federal agency, we were able to come to um, an agreement and do an interagency agreement to be able to fund the work that the Department of the Interior is doing. Well, Shelley, tell us more about these types of archives. I mean, where where were they housed or where are they housed and in what form are they? Tell us more. The Department of the Interior is looking at and they are located in different locations across the country. A majority of the materials are paper materials. Some of them are very fragile. Some of them have to be handled very cautiously. Uh, the materials are, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure stored in different boxes in different locations. Um, they've had to have staff who have gone in and taken the materials, combed through them, uh, tried to pull information that was important that could be digitized. Um, and that is process that is ongoing right now. Okay. So what will be the advantages now with these stories and records being digitized? The nice thing about bringing these materials forward, digitizing them, is that it makes it then possible for them to be available online uh, or to develop some kind of online archive that the public will be able to access. So family members, even just community members or the general public um, down the road would have the opportunity to go online to find a website uh, that has this material to click on a school to be able then to see all the digitized records pertaining to that school. And it could be 
um, student records. It could be curriculum information. It could be material about the buildings um, and the infrastructure of the school, but it gives us a better understanding of the history of these boarding schools. And, and in particular, it gives tribal communities access to information about their tribal members who attended these schools. Okay, so like for myself, I have grandparents that went to the Albuquerque Indian School and Santa Fe Indian School as well. So at some point in the future, then I could access some kind of online database or website and perhaps find their old grades and things like that. Perhaps you could, if it was material that was available, if they had some in paper form that could be digitized and as you know, when the, when an online system gets developed, you should be able to do that. Alrighty. Well, Shelley, a press release mentioned that tribes and groups have been asking the federal government for a digital boarding school stories repository. So why has it taken so long? Why now? You know, that is a very good question. And I think that it is some of the some of the work that the Department of the Interior is um, looking at when they are doing this federal um, boarding school initiative. I do feel like leadership right now, having Secretary Hallen and Assistant Secretary Brian Newland in the seat, um, able to lead this initiative, uh, makes a big makes a big point, and and is an important time for us to think about um, having the ability then for someone like me to come in through a, fe a different federal agency to support this project is is very important as well. Okay, I think you're being a little bit modest, Shelley, because absolutely, I mean. Secretary uh, of the Interior, Deb Holland, and, and of course, Brian Newland are big players here. But having a Diné person as chair for the National Endowment for the Humanities, that's that's got to help a lot too, right? Oh, I definitely hope so. You know, I, like I said, this really fits into the work of our agency, um, really preserving our American history, and this is part of American history, and not just preserving it, but making it accessible to the public is a goal of the agency. And this is part of our history that we haven't yet looked at. We haven't looked at on a large scale, and we haven't made available to the public yet. Okay. Well, Shelly, please stay with us. Uh, I want to come back to you, but I do want to bring in Fallon Carey now into our conversation. Again, Fallon is the Digital Archives Assistant for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And Fallon, your organization has already digitized boarding school documents in a way similar to what Shelley describes. When did that project start and what was the motivation? Yeah, so um, our project started in 2018 in earnest. Um, and so we have been slowly chipping away um, at getting grant funding um, to work on these projects. And obviously COVID-19 really put a wedge in doing on-site scanning. So we've had um, a lot of projects that um, were um, pushed back until this year. And we actually just finished a couple. Uh, I'm sorry, Sean, what was the second part of your question? Oh, just the motivation for, for getting the project started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so NAPS has been an organization for over 10 years. And I think this was the long-term goal. Um, you know, we get calls from survivors and descendants in our office um, every single day. Um, and I've answered many emails from descendants asking if we have information on their parents or their grandparents, and not everybody knows where to look. Um, and when we have a resource like NIBSTA, we can help them reconnect with their family, um, but obviously it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I think the point is, though, is that um, we didn't forget about these children, and we still have forgot, and we still haven't forgotten those um, who have grown into our elders. And um, in the digital archives corner of the organization, um, this is how we're going to show that we remember.
Okay. Well, Fallon, this just sounds like a super exciting project, but really daunting. I mean, how many hours hit, went into just going through all these different records? And, and as Shelley shared earlier, some of them are very old, very fragile. What all does that take? Oh, yeah. Okay. So as Shelly mentioned, so the process goes, um, we get grant funding. Um, we have some relationships. Um, Stephen Curley, who's the director of the Digital Archives, who I work under, um, he's um, done a lot of work to build some relationships with the folks at uh, the National Archives. And so when we get the grant funding, we travel out to the archives to scan items for about eight weeks at a time. And depending on the grant, we'll go multiple times or just once. Um, so we'll take those uh, materials, and they are brittle. We have special scanners. Um, and we have to oftentimes remove staples from this very delicately. Um, staff at NARA has to assist us very closely. Um, so we'll take those digital files and then they come back to the office with us. And that's where myself and a few other contractors come in. Um, we make sure those PDFs that we digitized aren't warped or duplicates. And then we begin the process of ingesting those materials into the database. And that's essentially just me uh, working on spreadsheets for weeks on end. <laughs> um, so that's, that's pretty much the process and it's, it's ours, you know, like when we're at NARA, um, myself and our scanners and Selena, who's online here, um, has also done contract work for us. Um, but, um, we work, um, nine to four and there's usually an hour afterwards of, you know, touching base and, um, you know, just confirming our work. Um, okay. and that'll go on for eight weeks at a time. And that's not including the work cataloging. Okay. Wow. Really intensive work, but obviously very rewarding. Uh, we're going to talk more with Fallon Carey after this break. In fact, she's even going to share uh, a document that she discovered uh, that was written by the family of, of a student many, many years ago. Anybody wants to call in with a question, uh, feel free to do so. 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be right back. Nailing down a mortgage for homes on trust land can be a complicated prospect. And right now, interest rates are putting mortgages even further out of reach for some prospective buyers. But there are several tools to help Native home buyers. We'll explore the current home buying landscape on the next Native America Calling. OCO. You look after everyone else. Look after yourself, too. Check out these health care resources for women and at all stages of life. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash women's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing digitizing archives. It's a long and laborious task, digging into old archives, sorting documents, converting them into a digital format for public access. Is your tribe doing digital archive work? If so, what kinds of historical records or information could be important to you? Give us a call. Join the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. On the line now is Fallon Carey with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And Fallon, you just got done describing uh, just how much time and effort goes into retrieving and digitizing these documents. Well, tell us a little bit more about the types of documents. What all did you find? What did you read? What did you discover as part of this project? Yeah, so um, 
most of what we have right now digitized and ready to go into NIBSTA are going to be the student case files. We really put an emphasis on that. So as you all mentioned earlier, um, they're files for individual students um, that are going to have things like report cards, their applications, but a lot of what the bulk of the material is are going to be letters from home and correspondences um, related to those individual students. Um, so we have a sampling of just three schools right now, um, but we have a lot of projects in the works and are hoping to expand soon. But uh, the majority are student case files, and we also have superintendents, correspondences, and other operational documents on the boarding schools. Okay, and I understand there is a document that you're prepared to share with us on air today? Yeah, so um, the example that I wanted to share with you is from student case file um, from Chamawa and um, the Chamawa Indian Training School in Washington. Um, so I see a lot of sad files, and it's always okay, parents constantly. Oregon, requesting. I believe, right? Salem, Oregon, Chamawa. Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Okay. No worries, no worries. Please <laughs> so, go ahead. No, so thank you for that. Um, so I see um, a lot of sad files, and it's parents constantly requesting their children to be sent home. And usually the answer is always no. Um, so this one stood out to me because it illustrates, I think, how Native people weren't passive victims to the boarding school policies. Um, and so when I have a hard day, this is the file that I like to pull out to kind of remind me of how important our work is. Um, so quickly, the story behind this file is that um, in March of 1900, the parents of the two sisters who were at the school um, asked that their children be sent home because their other sister was passing away and they wanted her home with them. And when they refused to turn back or to return back to the school, um, they tried to take legal action against these sisters. And here is the letter, um, a paraphrased, paraphrased version, because it's pretty long, um, of this um, response by one of the sisters to the superintendent. Okay. Um, it is said in the letter that we are to go back April 3rd. But how do you know we'll go? I said once that I didn't want to leave my folks. They're sad and not happy. If it wasn't for us, they would be brokenhearted every day. It was said in Tacoma that they are, we are our own boss and we can do what we please to do. If we don't want to go back to Chamawa, we don't have to, unless we want to go. That's what the lawyer said. The slaves were freed already hereafter and I want to be paid for what I do like other girls. I don't want to go to school all the days of my life. I want to work and earn money for myself instead of going to school. The Indians on the reservation have just as much a sense as any white man, educated or not. The white people ought to know that the Indians have more right for their children than the whites have. My father and mother said that they have been after Lucy and I long enough, and they're not going to do it any longer without any trouble. I was not on earth to be bossed around by white people nor anybody else. I would rather obey my father and mother and not anybody else. I said I don't want to go back to school. What I sent, I meant it, and I wasn't talking through my hat when I told you. If Lucy and I were orphans, we would go back quick, but we have a father and mother yet. That's why we don't go back. Wow. Wow. Okay. And, and again, uh, what's the date on this letter, Fallon? Um, yeah, it's dated uh, March 23rd, 1900. <laughs> okay. So 120. And here, that family had lawyered up. They were super articulate. I mean, wow. Talk about like uh, score one for the survivors, huh? Yeah, exactly. I, I love this file. And I love the resistance and her strength. You can hear it in her voice um, and her, her letter. I, I don't know. I just, I love it. And, you know, sometimes you don't always get this. Um, so it's, it's a good highlight, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, 
I want to talk more about some of these other documents and some of these other stories. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take a call now. We have Chanupa, who is listening up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you for this subject. Um, for the lady, I want to share something with you. I was in relocation. He sent me to Beaumont, Texas, so my grandfather volunteered me to go so my rest of my siblings wouldn't go. But when I was there, I met the late Steve Revis, Everett Skunkcap, and uh, Junior Chalmaine, and Dickie Richard Caffrobe, and a young brother named Claude Goggles, who was Arapaho and Cheyenne. And what happened when my grandpa and him tried to receive the records, the records were gone. But our names are there, okay? And one thing that they did to us, they tried to strip us from our language. To this day, at the age of 65, I still speak my Lakota language. So imagine my brothers being torn away from the Browning Reservation in Montana, Lame Deer and me from Pine Ridge, and Robert running from Rosebud. We had no clue what we were getting into because this was federal Indian policy. That's the thing that people don't talk about. Today, in Rapid City, South Dakota, there's a treaty meeting. So do you think they would bring that issue up about past and present school abuse, especially relocation? I don't think so. That is what needs to be dampered because the more investigations aimed at what we went through in relocation, that's the healing journey on the Red Road. And thank you, Sean, for allowing me to come on your show. Wopila, and to the sister, too. Thank you. Thank you, Chanupa, very much uh, for that call. And uh, Fallon, that's an interesting comment from Chanupa. And I'm, I'm just curious because you mentioned earlier uh, you've got a three-school sampling. And, of course, there are hundreds of boarding schools. So about how far along are you in the process in terms of, you know, like obviously I would think the goal is to get all of these records, all of these archives digitized. But it uh, sounds like that could possibly take many, many years. Uh, yes, it will. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for the call. Um, I'm a grandchild of relocation, so I completely understand. We moved back to our um, traditional homeland, and so I, I'm lucky to also have that connection. Um, but, um, yeah, so our sampling that we have so far is from Mount Edgecombe in Alaska, Cushman in, or, or Cushman in Washington, and Chamala in Oregon. Um, and we, like I said, we have a couple projects in the works. Um, we're currently on, uh, working on our Pipestone um, here in Minnesota um, project, and we have a couple more in the future. Um, but our goal is to eventually have a very large sampling. But, you know, so far it's just Stephen and I, Stephen Curley and myself. We do have contractors, but there's also 521 schools out there. Um, so that's – I think Stephen and I could work our entire lives and just, you know, we would still have work to do. We joke around all the time that we definitely have job security because there's never not going to be work. You know, so. <laughs> sounds like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, after reviewing all the documents that you have reviewed to this point, I mean, is there like kind of an overarching theme or tone to, to what you've read and, and, and what you've uh, uncovered? Um, yeah, there is. And I'd, I'd like to keep in mind, though, that we're also reading um, the records that were kept in those files. You know, you never know what wasn't included or what was removed. And um, I think the overarching theme, I will say something that stands out in my mind, is every single file that I read, there are messages from parents 
requesting that their kids be sent home, every single file. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these children were loved. They were missed. You know, there's many letters of mothers saying, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't seen you in eight years, but I haven't forgotten you. Um, and, you know, depending on the school, there's a lot of language that is extremely offensive, or, you know, about, you know, and I think it really highlights the attitudes that a lot of these people um you know, regarded Native children and how they didn't see them um, as equal. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, tough show today, folks. So anybody listening here, um, you know, just please uh, hang in there because I know uh, some of these issues are, are challenging to think about and reflect on even all these years later. Uh, I want to go ahead now and bring Deirdre Whiteman into our conversation. She's also with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. She and Fallon are colleagues. And Deidre, I'd like to learn a little bit more about how, you know, people make requests uh, to the Coalition for Historical Information. I mean, who usually submits those requests? Well, so the process is like if someone calls and they're just, uh, depending on who answers the call, we kind of refer it to whoever's in in, in our agency Who's ever, who's ever able to take the call or the information. And uh, it just depends. We get a lot of uh, community members, family members, even our even our own family members will, um, you know, request information. And so it really varies. Um, and I, I, I just noticed that, like, you know, I've only been with the organization for about two years now, and I've seen an uptick in requests. Uh, people are wanting access to documents, wanting to know more information specifically regarding one particular boarding school. They they have a lot of questions for that. And so we really try to uh, navigate these questions and, and figure out who who's best to help answer and help guide uh, whoever calling our agency to help guide them the best that we can. You know, that's really interesting because I, I think for so many of us, you know, we know about these stories or we know about some of these relatives that may have gone missing. But for years, we just kind of just, well, we don't really know what happened. They were, you know, I have a, a great uncle that died at Sherman Indian School, and, and we know, like, don't really know much about it other than the fact that he died there. But, but now people have been motivated. People are inspired, and, and we're not just sitting back and saying, well, we don't know. People are actually coming forward now, and they want this information. And do you think that's only going to continue going forward, Deidre? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, it's uh, it's almost like, you know, understanding who we are and how we came to be. It's just part it's part of our history. It's part of our family history. And just looking at how, you know, how how our family came to be where they're at. I mean, just, you know, I know Fallon mentioned uh, relocation, just understanding that that policy in itself is like, wow, just, you know, how did we end up in this city or how did we end up in this certain town? And it's just really taking a, a, a look back into how we came to be and where we are today. Um, I know within my own family, uh, I've taken a lot of action to really understand, you know, how these, like the, the gentleman before who called in, how these historical policies have shaped our people and how it's it affected us tremendously. And it's still affects us to this day and just like I said looking at my own family and how you know we're my family's scattered about across uh, the Midwest and you know my my parents met at Flandre Indian School my my dad actually went to school with Steve Rebus and so I have a little background on that Mm. um 
And so, but just understanding like how my, my parents and my grandparents came to be has been so healing in my fam in my family and healing for myself because I just, it, it's really hard to understand when you don't, when you're taught so many times in schools and I went to a public school that, you know, you don't exist. You, you, your, your people um, died out in the 1800s and, and you're just left with this like mark on yourself. Like, well, what's wrong with me? Why, why, why is this, why is, why are things the way they are? And why, why are these things happening to my family? And so it's just a way to look back into your past and to find out, you know, this is, this is where, you know, this trajectory stopped. But then now, knowing this information, this is how we can move forward. Deidre, you know, we're hearing, uh, you know, we even heard from a letter that was read there by Fallon. And, and again, these overarching themes of, of parents wanting their kids to come home. But I found it significant that apparently some of the boarding school attendees uh, who've been interviewed have also spoken very highly of their experience. And are those stories from people who spoke favorably about boarding schools, are those being documented as well? Of course. And that's, and that's what we want to know. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that they, they had a, a, a more encouraging experience and that they weren't abused and they weren't um, subjected to these horrible things that happened. And to me that just, you know, I, I'm happy for them because I, 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 it, like Fallon mentioned, reading these stories, listening to um, survivors tell, you know, the things that have happened to them really, you know, it gets, it gets us really, you know, down and makes us really feel like, man, why does this continue to happen? But when we hear stories about how, you know, it, this wasn't the case for me. And so we, we want to hear those stories because we want to know, like, it, that not everyone experienced horrible things there, you know, some some have ex- have really good experience and fond min- fond memories, and it was also a place too that I know my mother mentioned this to me is that she she felt the most comfortable there because she was around other Indian children and mm. she felt like she could be who she was, and so we need to hear those stories more as well. I, and that's my family because I know my grandparents they they would you know they would tell us some of these bad stories, but. I know they also had really wonderful memories. In fact, one of my grandmothers was the, the valedictorian of her class at Albuquerque Indian School back in the 1920s. And that's an accomplishment that her entire life she was just extremely proud of. So I think it's interesting to, to think about some of those other experiences as well. And I want to pivot back to, to Shelly Lowe quickly before our break. And Shelly, uh, you know, it just sounds like there is just a huge need and a huge demand for, for digitizing these records and going through these archives. Uh, but it sounds like there's just, you know, only so many organizations and so many people that can do this. So I'm curious to know, is NEH supporting projects for people that want to get involved and contribute to these efforts? Yes. Yeah, so one of the the nice things about NEH, besides the fact that we're supporting the interior in their federal Indian boarding school initiative, um, we're going to be doing some um targeted calls for applicants and for grant projects that can really move this project forward in various ways. Um, They could be projects that support curriculum development to teach about this history or to teach about the federal policies that were taking place during this era. They could be for language revitalization, for cultural revitalization, and they could be for other schools who maybe weren't federally funded who are looking to digitize and uh, 
provide access to their own records um, that are not going to be part of this um, boarding school initiative kind of look and, and, and delving into the archive materials. So we have a number of projects that we're really hoping communities, organizations will be interested in applying to. All righty. Well, Shelly, thank you for, for adding those insights and, and that information as well. And we are going to have to break here in just a moment, but uh, really would like to get some more calls today from anyone listening, uh, perhaps somebody who attended a boarding school or has relatives, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents who might have attended a boarding school. And uh, you have questions or you're interested in learning more about some of these projects with regard to digitizing these records. Some of them go back well over 100 years. What are you waiting for? we got open phone lines. That number to call, 1-800-996-2848. I'll share it again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. We're talking about the importance of digitally preserving historical documents and records linked to U.S. boarding schools and other important events in Native history. Have you ever tried to find a relative in the boarding school system only to find no available records to search? What was that like? Frustrating? Upsetting? Painful? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. And with that, we have a caller right now, Anna listening up in Warm Springs, Oregon on KWSO. Hello, Anna. Actually, so I have a question in general for anybody that's working in records area. Um, I'm more interested in that area of working, and I'm hoping I can get some feedback or point it in the right direction to continue working with records and preserving them, um, you can reach me on my at my email address, thisfemalenative at gmail.com. Again, I'm just calling, wanting to be pointed in the right direction for more learning in area of records. And that's, that's all I have to say for today. Thank you so much. All righty. Thank you so much for calling in. And I want to go ahead and ask uh, Deirdre to respond We've got a caller interested in working in this field. And Deidre, you shared earlier, uh, you started with uh, the coalition about two years ago. So what do you recommend? What's the best way for somebody to get into this line of work? I, I guess I'm not, uh, I'm not understanding the question. What do you, um, can you restate that? Yeah, for somebody who's interested in working with regard to research and archives, digitizing documents, reading documents, safeguarding some of the this information in this oh. history how, how do they get into that yeah well mine mine's more of a personal uh personal i guess path mine i started out as an educator 
And then this is how I, and I'm not currently working on my doctorate in education at the University of South Dakota. And so a lot of mine is more based off of, you know, what I've been learning through my courses. But I feel like Fallon would be more of, uh, she'd be more able to answer this question. Okay, Fallon, please chime in. Uh, Yeah, so um, with us, so um, we digitize records that are uh, pre-1947. Um, so these records um, are not going to be people who are currently living. Um, the National Archives, if you were to be interested in going there, they do have quite a few records. Um, we focus a lot on um, the Seattle location, Chicago, Denver, um, and Kansas City. Um, they have quite a lot of the federal records. Um, and so as long as somebody who you want to go and digitize their file isn't living, um, then those those are actually open to the public for digitization. Okay. Um, does that help the, answer your question? Yeah, and then for somebody who who would like a you know actually like a full time job in this as a career, uh, what type of training, what type of education does it require to get into this field? Yeah, so I mean, just keep an eye out. You know, we're always hiring contract workers on our website. We have projects coming up that we'll be looking for people, and that could definitely be you know, a good introduction. Um, For myself, um, I got um, a master's in library science and I applied for this job, you know, after I graduated. Um, I actually, well, actually I worked at the uh, university before I came to NAVS and um, that's kind of how I was able to get this opportunity. But like I said, uh, we have contract positions available for the scan work um, that we do post on our website quite often. So keep, keep an eye out. Okay, thank you, Fallon. Let's go ahead and bring our fourth guest into the conversation again, Selena Ortega-Chalero. And uh, Selena, I know you're up there in Alaska with the Chickaloon Village Traditional Council. And, you know, l- learning more about this process and these very old, fragile documents, can you explain a little bit more about the technical side of this work? And how do you, you actually go about, again, securing this information, these materials, and, and preserving them in a digital format? Sure. Um, There's actually a lot involved. (laughs) So um, I would say, first and foremost, I think that one of the biggest challenges is identifying where materials are. Um, As Fallon had previously mentioned, I um, had the honor of being one of the contractors that went to the National Archives Seattle branch. And I did last fall, spent eight weeks there, and then just this spring, spent four weeks And one of the challenges that we were noticing as we were going into those spaces was um, the way files and materials were described. Um, uh, Our first caller that you had on earlier this morning had mentioned how um, sometimes, you know, he was talking about records that they went to a school and they couldn't find their names, even though they knew that, you know, they were there. And this, I've noticed that too, when you go into the records, names are misfiled, Sometimes you find a file and there's no information in it, but they had an actual physical file. Um, So I think that's probably a big challenge. Um, Luckily, the National Archives published a book called Guide to Records in the National Archives of the United States Relating to American Indians um, that was compiled by Edward Hill. Um, It's a a free copy is available online because it's no longer in print, but it's basically a comprehensive book that talks about all of the different types of collections that are held in the National Archives and gives you a brief description of what you can find in those collections. Um, For those of us who go into repositories across the country or even internationally, that is a huge problem, finding 
what you're trying to look for. Because what we call from one thing in our community isn't something that the federal government identifies. And that's a whole other process that's still like happening at the forefront in archives and museum collections. Um, so yes, identifying your materials is the first thing. And then once you find the materials, it's figuring out all of the multiple complicated formats that you want to digitize your materials and the equipment that's needed for that. Um, for the NABS project, we used overhead scanners um, and uh, laptop computers. Uh, for me here in Alaska, I use a combination of an overhead scanner and a flatbed Epson V600 scanner, which um, in itself, different softwares, different ways to manage it through your computers, there's that. And then coming up with a clever filing system that's good for whatever your needs are, whether that's an institution or a private individual is a secondary thing. Um, and then I think the third thing that often gets forgotten um, is self-care. You're going into these spaces, looking at these materials, um, the boarding school materials, the ones that I scanned were predominantly administrative files. And you get to see a broader picture of just how strategic this assimilation process was, how federal and state agencies were working in tandem with local law enforcement to get these students away from their families to these far remote areas. And then sometimes the children would run away because they missed their home so much, and then they would be brought back. Or horrific things would happen when they ran away for, you know, whatever happens in scenarios. But you just get to see this bigger picture. And after processing all these things, it's a lot of emotions. I mean, as Fallon had read in her, uh, the file that she shared with us, these stories of children missing their families, families missing their children, um, the offensive language and terminology you read in these files, it's, it's a lot. So I think remembering to do a lot of self-care is super important. Mm. Absolutely. And Selena, you're working on a, a digitizing boarding school project right now with the Chickaloon Village. Tell us more about it. What kind of files and records are you focusing on? Um, we're not just doing boarding school files. So um, we are in our final year of a collaborative IMLS um, project with the Anchorage Museum. Um, basically, the Anchorage Museum was really trying to break down um, the power control that a lot of repositories have and reframe the way they manage their collections. So we're doing a digital repatriation project where it involves us sending in research teams to their space. We've been doing it over the last year. Um, our research teams are comprised of myself, our Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, our Assistant Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, and um, a group of elders and culture bearers not just from Chicago Native Village, but from also our um, neighboring uh, Atna-related communities and extended family members. We go into those spaces, identify materials. Um, some of them do include boarding schools like Aklutna um, uh, Vocational School. And we're not only identifying images that we want digital surrogates of to put into our own database, but we're working with the Anchorage Museum staff to educate them um, and items that either should not be publicly shared or items that have offensive descriptions or inaccurate descriptions and correcting the way they're describing their materials so that they're better serving the Atna community as well as educating the general public. Okay. Well, how long did it take for this project to come about? Because it sounds like the museum uh, might have not been that easy to work with before. It's true. Anchorage Museum is um, 
I would definitely say over the last seven, eight years have done a drastic shift in the way they're thinking and working with Alaska Native communities across the board. Um, our relationship with the Anchorage Museum took about a year to develop. They came to us, actually. We did not go to them. Um, we started just an initial conversation about they asked us what we needed. We explained what we wanted to do, what our goals were for the future. Um, we're really immersed in digital initiatives. For us, our biggest priority right now with our collections is access um, and repatriation. We are, are in pre-development for a cultural facility, so physically repatriating items is a little ambitious for us at this point. So for us, it's really about bringing back the information to our community so it can properly be shared um, with our community and the general public, um, but also really recontextualizing the way uh, the materials are shared um, in the virtual world. Um, a lot of times they're misidentified or there's uh, definitely a lack of understanding, and we're really trying to correct that narrative. At the same time, we're also trying to reconnect our tribal citizens with their culture, their history, and their language. Um, our last fluent speaker of uh, the Atna dialect, the Western Atna dialect, passed away um, in the early 2000s. And so there is very little documentation of our dialect. And the, the language that our tribe speaks today is a combination of Western and Central dialect. And that's just something that the tribe has had to come to terms with to move forward in order to maintain language within our community. So every time we go into these repositories and find more Western dialect language, it's important um, because it's helping to uh, reconnect our community with that language. Um, the other thing is also um, letting people have a voice and also learning to reconnect with each other is another important thing that we've been focused on. Okay. Well, so Selena, I mean, listening to you and the other guests now, I mean, really, I mean, the possibilities are endless here. I mean, and really just, you know, touching on the boarding schools, that's just the tip of the iceberg because now you mentioned dialects and languages. And I would imagine the digger you deep, the, the, excuse me, the digger, the deeper that you dig, like the more information you find it and the more you want to learn and, and you learn about more topics and issues that haven't even been touched on yet. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's interesting because, like, before, before I was the contractor with NABS, um, before I even got to go look at the, the Edgecombe and the Cushman and the Chamawa records, I, I had a, a preconception of the boarding school history, how everything was tied together. And then you actually go in and look at these materials, and you see how related they are to one another. And there's so many more stories, so much a bigger picture to be seen that you don't recognize um, the other thing is you definitely go down rabbit holes as you're doing this research, as you're doing this digitization um, and other pathways. We were very fortunate when we were there. Um, my, our uh, TIPO was with me when we were doing our scanning last fall, and, and we had tribal citizens who went to Mount Edgecombe, and we were able to identify files there. Um, my, during the whole entire time, our TIPO was on the phone with our, our chief, and we were getting permissions and authorizations to get records of um, the descendants of tribal citizens, uh, boarding school uh, survivors. Um, but the files that we were finding had correspondences between family. And there were, like Tipple made a point, she's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen the handwriting of this individual. And it was a relative of hers. And it was a big thing, like for her to see that. Also, they were having conversations about 
um, the family that was staying in Alaska and then the people that were at the students that were in Mount Edgecombe. So just getting that experience was monumental for her. Um, here at, at the Anchorage Museum, um, one of our elders who went in, she got to see a picture of her mother um, who was young when she went to Akutna Vocational School. Her family has no pictures of her mother when she was a child because she was at boarding school. And so it was the first time she got to see a picture of her mother. And just that moment, seeing her see that and the way she like broke down and was crying, it was it was overwhelming and a powerful moment to just see how she got a piece of her mom back that she'd never had before. And it's things, it's moments like that that I live for doing this work, um, just to see how important this is, that reconnection, um, to, to feel something that you've lost come back to you. It's, it's amazing. You really can't understate the significance. Thank you. Selena, and we're going to have to wrap up the show here in about another minute, but I'm going to give you the last word. And what I want to ask you is, you know, here you're working with Anchorage Museum, and I'm so inspired today listening to you and our other guests. Uh, but at the same time, I just think to myself, there are so many other museums out there. There are so many other potential repositories. So what's it going to take to just get all that information from all these museums and all these other places and, and get it all accessible to, to Native people in our communities? I think just doing your part and doing the work, um, whether that means you're someone who doesn't even have an archive or museum background, you're going into a place just to find a record, um, sharing it with the people that it's appropriate to share it with, talk about it, having conversations like this. Um, if you are an academic or if you are an archivist or museum, writing about it. I think the problem is we've... We're, we're dealing with this pain. We're dealing with this trauma. And it's so complicated in itself. Sometimes we forget that it's important we need to share these stories because there's a lot of people that don't know about it. Um, just the research pathways that I've learned doing the NABS work, um, I've been sharing that a lot. And I've, I've talked to other tribal archivists, and a lot of them didn't even know that that book was even available or that there were certain records that were being held at the National Archives. Because no one talks to each other because we're so busy doing the work. So I think that's the most significant impact that you can make in our, all of our communities is talk about it, share about it, um, offer advice. There, there is no space okay. for Selena, I'm sorry. Dependent. We're out of time. I feel like this show could go on another hour. But I do want to thank all of our guests today, Fallon Carey, Deidre Whiteman, Shelly Lowe, and Selena ortega Chalero. Join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow for a conversation about current mortgage rates and tools to help Native Americans purchase or rehab a home. Until then, have a great rest of your day. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com.
Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.